Hi and welcome to the next episode of What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech with me, Rich, and my co-host, Jennifer. You there? This week, we're talking to Alexa Scordato from Glitch. Hi, Alexa. It'd be good to get an introduction to you and, yeah, what you do, who you are. Great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I would say that I am a digital storyteller, marketer by trade, avid traveler, foodie, and recently married woman. Congrats. Thanks. Cool. Um, and, and so could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment and your role at Glitch and, and maybe just a bit about Glitch as well and kind of who the company are? Sure. So um, I run marketing. I'm the VP of marketing at Glitch. And Glitch is, for me, I'm biased, obviously, one of the most interesting, fun corners of the web. We are the best, fastest way to go from idea to code in seconds. And so if you have either a static site or a full stack app that you want to create, you can go to Glitch. You don't have to set up a developer environment. Just open your browser, start coding, and we auto-deploy and host your projects. And so we have over a million users we have millions of apps, everything from web XR, AR, VR apps to sort of internal production code from companies. Um, we have APIs and integrations. We have digital art. I love, <clears throat> I love Glitch because I think it's a community of coders that really indexes very differently than what most people would think of as your typical coding site. It's like neon and pastel and it's colorful and it's playful, um, which is such a juxtaposition from, I think, your standard, you know, terminal or, or Git environment. Black screen of death is what I call it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everyone's like hype on dark mode and I'm like, pastel mode, give me pastel mode. Cool. And, and just to kind of for anyone that sort of just wants to sort of learn a bit more, I was kind of interested to know, you, you sort of said it, it's, it does so many different things, but sort of broadly speaking, like who, like who uses it and who, who is it for? And, and I guess maybe, maybe the better question is, who do you sort of see yourself kind of talking to as a marketer? I mean, it's been one of the biggest challenges because I think glitch can be a lot of things to different people, whether it's parents helping their kids code their first website to digital artisans and people who are just trying to skill up, you know, they they want to learn React for the first time or they want to play with the new framework or library. But, you know, as we've matured, we're really starting to work on our professional use cases. And so we have developers at all teams, uh, shapes and sizes who use Glitch for interviews and onboarding internal hackathons, even just like demoing and prototyping code that could then be used for product development. And then we also have some of the world's largest DevRel teams who use Glitch. You embed Glitch projects and documentation. You might use Glitch in workshops or live streams. And so there's also a very diverse range of professional use cases. And then how did you get to marketing such a company? Do you have a technical background, Alexa? 
I don't. Join and everyone, <laughs> everyone thinks, everyone thinks like, oh, you're a developer, right? And it's kind of like a fake it till you make it situation. So I, I actually am sort of a content marketer by trade. And when you think about one of the largest content properties on the web, it's actually Stack Overflow. The entire business of Stack Overflow is knowledge sharing and developers creating content or knowledge and sharing it with one another. So I ran marketing there for about four years and Stack Overflow and Trello actually were spun out of Fog Creek software, which is actually what got rebranded into Glitch. And so Anil Dash, who is Glitch's CEO, um, is actually on the board of Stack Overflow. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, would love for you to join the team. Anil is someone who I've admired in the industry for a very, very, very long time. And I just couldn't say no. That's great. That's super interesting. Oh. It's always good to be pilfered for a even yeah. better role, even if you like your job. So it mm-hmm. sounds like you had a good instinct for it. How does it work conveying... I don't know. It sounds very easy, like almost suspiciously easy. Glitch does like suspiciously, like how do you convey to developers that it helps them do something easily, but it's also secure. It's also safe. How do you convey that, especially from a marketing side? Because I guess it's a challenge for you. I mean, I think one of the best parts about marketing to developers is that they're always learning. You know, they don't actually have the benefit of saying, we're going to do it this way because they can't afford to be stagnant in the tools and technology that they use. And so I actually love developers because as a professional class, I think they're lifelong learners. And so much of the learning is learning by doing. And so we have the benefit of having a product where, you know, seeing is believing. There is nothing that makes me more excited than taking a first-time user, having them open up their browser and say, hey, just type and you can see your code deploy. It's like Google Docs, but for developers. And so there's something incredible about that. I have a cousin who's in a coding boot camp right now, and he lost his mind when I showed him Glitch because he was learning Git and he was in GitHub and he was in his terminal. And like, yes, he loves his VS code, but setting a developer environment, like it kind of sucks. You know, it's, it's almost like if you want to cook a meal and then someone's like, but wait, you have to like build your kitchen first. It's like, no, you just want to start cooking. And so I think getting developers to a place where when they're just itching to get into the code, they can do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I yes, it's challenging because developers are also skeptical, but I just feel lucky because there's so much enthusiasm around the product. And plus all of the glitch apps that are sort of out there on the web, that's sort of the best marketing, right? It's word of mouth. Does it say um, that they're glitch apps, that they're on the web and stuff? There's, Does it say powered by glitch or something in the bottom? So we, we give everyone the ability to make that choice. But there are a lot of apps where you'll see a cute little fish uh, on the top right or something, in which case you can remix the code. And so when you're a creator on Glitch, you can decide if it's almost the equivalent of open sourcing your code. You're giving everyone the ability to remix. And even some of our vocabulary is not so developer-y, meaning we're not telling people, go fork this code base. (laughs) We're just saying, remix it. And I think at its core, that's part of what Glitch is trying to do, which is almost, you know, at a subconscious level, 
communicate that code can be approachable and it could be for everyone. So we constantly have to have that dynamic where developers trust it and it's sort of good enough for the professionals. But for anyone who wants an on-ramp into tech, it's not as intimidating. Is it free to start for all these people? I'm a big fan of boot camps and getting non-traditional paths into the tech world. Totally free to start. Okay. And then um, similar, I guess there's an issue often that, and this is an issue whether GitLab or Glitch, a lot of platforms, a lot of HR platforms and tools require a GitHub account. So could you take that proof and put in GitHub or can someone have a profile of their work on Glitch that they could share in a job interview or how does that work for adding proof of work? So you have a Glitch profile and then any projects that you've made and created are, are linked on there. Or if you sort of have your own portfolio site, the portfolio site itself could be coded in Glitch. Or if you say had some other website, you could embed your Glitch projects and apps there as well. Okay, cool. You mentioned the, you mentioned like how developers are skeptical or like this kind of skepticism. I was kind of wondering what you sort of meant by that and also like how that affects sort of or sort of impacts how you work and sort of what you have to do as in terms of like communication. I I'd say I was sort of just thrown into it when I started at Stack Overflow. There are just there was just a lot that I had to learn about the the developer world. And what I mean by developers are skeptical, I mean, I'll just be really blunt. They can smell when they are being marketed to and sold a mile away. And because developers are also technical, they're the ones responsible for algorithms and ad technologies. And so traditional channels like paid ads on the web, you know, a lot of the Stack Overflow developers had ad blockers, right? And and that's why I think there really is this aspect of communicating to developers through content, knowledge sharing, authenticity, and like value that is so critical if you want to be successful in this space. Because vague marketing speak and sort of, I don't know, abstract statements are going to be met with tremendous skepticism. And I'm not even sure if it's specific to developers, but I'm not sure that the efficacy of ads lends itself to trust. And so I think that community-based marketing, content-based marketing, really like giving to get and establishing a relationship with that person is so critical. But in some ways, I think good developer marketing is just good marketing, period. Agreed. I'm a big fan of the developer marketing, uh, which brings me to questions developers care about. Do you have an API and how is your documentation? Don't have an open API. I think it's a wish list for a lot of folks on our team, but we do have a help center that is run and managed by a wonderful person, Tasha, who is in Oregon. Like if you join our forum, and you need help, it's awesome. Our forum regulars, shout out to them. So friendly, so knowledgeable. I mean, I feel like they know things in our code base and changes that we've made even before some members of the team at the company do. And so I love their passion and enthusiasm, but also the the care that they have for one another. So this has been a weird year, der, and... You're not really traveling around to events anymore. How are you doing your developer marketing now in this 2D world? 
you know, it's been it's been a rough year because we've had to make a lot of adjustments. We, we used to have an office in downtown New York, and then we went fully remote. Luckily, already half the team was working in a distributed way, and so it wasn't that big of a leap. But, you know, we've sort of had some growing pains, to be frank. We've had to really examine our infrastructure and architecture, again, to scale millions of full stack apps um, and to sort of have that offered for free. It's actually not an easy technical feat. And so we actually spent a lot of time easing up on the marketing, marketing and community efforts so that we could really get our platform more stable. And so I really feel good about that. And I feel great about where we're headed and our roadmap. But in terms of, you know, marketing programs that are standard, you know, constantly spotlighting our creators constantly trying to make sure that if an app goes viral, which we have a lot of apps that do, you might appreciate this as folks in the UK, there was like a British food generator meme that was floating around. (laughs) And it was just linked in like the most random places. But we just need to make sure that when that content is sort of like floating out there, that, you know, it's not going to get rate limited and, and sort of fall over, because that's always an opportunity to just get free eyeballs onto onto Glitch. And then, you know, I have to shout out uh, Jen Schiffer. She's our director of community engineering, probably one of my favorite colleagues of all time. And Jen is just like this awesome avatar that we have in terms of representing, I think, the type of developer who we want in our community. She's kind, she's knowledgeable, she's full of personality, and she's just really like generous in terms of always trying to make sure that our users are advocated for. Where do your users live? Like, I assume you you said you have a forum, so you're not using Slack or obviously not Stack Overflow or GitHub. You're using a different type of forum and method just for your property or? Yep. So we have a, we have a, a forum and then we have a lot of engagement on Twitter, which is not surprising given our CEO is probably one of the most well-known Twitter Twitter users. But we have a lot of folks who are like very very online. And we have, you know, if you think about our roots going back to Fog Creek software, you know, Joel Spolsky, who co-founded Fog Creek, started Stack Overflow and Trello. Like he was one of the first OG bloggers. And (laughs) Joel on software is sort of like iconic with older programmers. And I think, yeah, it's, it's not surprising to me that there's this through line of people who are constantly publishing and helping one another online. And that's so deeply ingrained in our culture, the employees that we attract and kind of how we work. So you're not an open source tool, but you have an open source culture. Yep. And we we also have no lock-in. Like, I think it's really important. If you create and host on Glitch, and then you want to take your code and you want to like transfer it over and deploy it to Netlify or Heroku, whatever, like that's okay. You know, we're we're sort of agnostic in that sense. I think it's it's really, really important, whether you're technical or not, to feel a sense of ownership over what you're creating and really having that portability, right? If I want to, that's why, you know, I use WordPress, for example, as my sort of blog platform of choice, because I know 
my content is never going to be gated. It's never going to be sort of like locked into this closed off garden. And I feel the same, the same is true of Glitch. When you're building a developer community, the most important moment, especially even if it's not open source, is onboarding. How do you get them engaged in the community? How do you welcome them? Wow. So we actually just shipped something this week. So I'm excited I get to actually talk about this. So we have these things called starter apps. And basically, it's almost just like a core sample code. And so when you go to a starter app, you can just remix it. And again, you now have either you now have say you remix our Node.js app, you now have a fully running Node.js app in one click. Anyway, we actually just launched this week sort of a refreshed like homepage and like creator experience. We just want to make it simpler and more obvious to first time users that here are your starting blocks. And in one click, you can remix and deploy the app of your dreams. And there's so much more that we're doing on that front in terms of creating more of these starter apps. I definitely have some homework on the marketing end just to make sure that even some of our email sequences feel right. I think, you know, they're, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes I start projects and then I like hit a wall and then I never go back to it. And so there's a lot that I want to make sure we communicate to users, which is, okay, like, don't forget about this thing or you can do it. Like, how can we be encouraging sort of as you're going through your, your coding journey? How do you do that? Like what what sort of, do you have a kind of model of the user or do you kind of work closely with users? Or I mean, well, what, how would you sort of approach being sensitive to that, I suppose? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of it is um, we can look at, we can segment users based off of app type. And so someone who wants to create just a simple static site versus someone who wants sort of the full stack experience. It's not always the case, but we can infer that, you know, maybe the, the Node.js remixer is going to be a more advanced or more technical user. You know, we can look at their activity and just see, you know, is this someone who's just learning or is this someone who's more advanced? Are they working at a company? And so that's probably the best thing that we can do. But I think the first approach is we can actually just start being more explicit about asking users, like, what is your intent? Why are you here? And then really give them those clear paths to make sure that they're getting the content that they need and want. What tool do you use to build all that with emails and things? Because it sounds like you have an automatic chain of emails that go to certain profiles, right? So our, our marketing tech stack, we've built the Glitch website, like Glitch the product and Glitch the website are one in the same. And so we're a little bit weird in that sense because usually I have a marketing site that's on a CMS, and then you get kicked into the product. Here, you go to glitch.com and like, boom, it's the product. We have customer.io handling all of our emails. And then we also have a whole bunch of database tools like Segment, Redshift, and Amplitude that allow us to actually report on our behavioral analytics. So Google Analytics handles my web traffic. And then Amplitude is really helping us understand what users are doing in the product. You, you sort of mentioned like 
uh, kind of different segments, but I, I, I and I kind of wanted to drill a bit further on that and just sort of find out more kind of because obviously you've got so many different types of users, not just from a sort of technical or sort of marketing tactic perspective, but how do you sort of find that you, you sort of talk in different ways to different types of users, whether you think they're newbies or more experienced developers, whether they're kind of more front end or back end, like how, how does that sort of play out in terms of your work? You know, it's funny, we actually don't. I'd say our, our voice is fairly consistent, which is friendly and approachable. I don't think we ever want to sound like we're talking down to experienced developers. And we also <clears throat> never want to sound like we're too technical, where again, we're intimidating to like the newbie. It's about context, right? Like think if someone, it's similar to Stack Overflow, like if someone is in problem solving mode and they're trying to get an answer to a question, don't get in the way. But if someone is sort of in discovery mode and they're trying to seek out what is their next project or what is cool and what are people building, then there's actually license to be a little bit more emotional or aspirational in your tone. So some of that actually, you know, it's about context, but I think in general, sort of being friendly, being purposeful, and actually thinking about how you're talking to the user in their journey, like literally the customer journey, like, is it a first time user? Are they coming back? Are we re-engaging them? I think that's really critical. Cool. And and you mentioned um, like discovery and problem solving. Like, would you say, I mean, does Glitch kind of fall more into one or the other? Or, or, or like, how do you sort of understand the two within Glitch? And, and like, how do you sort of make sense of that, I guess? I think it's interesting because when you look at a lot of developer tools, they're selling solutions that are oriented towards, you know, a professional class of developers. And yes, 10,000%, we care about enabling developers and increasing productivity and time from idea to deploy. And I could rattle off a bajillion phrases that are in the SaaS enterprise lexicon, um, <laughs> But I think part of what drew me to Glitch is that self-expression and the ability to do that and to do that safely on the web is sort of under attack. You know, I really think that's a big problem that we have in the era of personal branding and influencers, in the era of putting developers on a pedestal. In an era of everyone's trying to tell everyone you need to learn how to code, for me, to the extent that we just catalyze getting people to create and to enable that process, I just love that. Like, I just think self-expression is so critical, and it's one of the joys of the web that drew me to it in the first place. So anyway, it's it's a balance, right? It's like they we have to make sure that professional developers can do the jobs that you know they're hired to do but at the same time i want those same developers who are working at slack twilio etsy google etc to then be able to also on their free time use glitch and feel that same level of joy and and get just as much value like just because you're using a tool at work you should also be able to use it in your personal life and and to have fun. So it's almost like work hard, code hard, play hard. <laughs> That's like the trifecta, right? <laughs> when you have such a huge user base and such a low barrier to entry, do you have a code of conduct or ethics or borders around what you would not accept? 
So there's definitely a terms of service that you can read on, on glitch.com. I'm not even going to pretend that I can recite it. My Our, our head of legal would definitely <laughs> not approve, but we do. And I think trust and safety is really key. I think when it comes to our leadership team, you know, starting with our CEO, just we don't have, we have a zero tolerance stance when it comes to hate speech, discrimination. Like we're not afraid to call out bad behavior when we see it. And so, I mean, some of it is learning as we grow. But that said, I do think that there are folks on the team who are so well-versed in online community building who are really thoughtful about the rules of engagement on the site. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we've had a lot of examples of how platforms have failed us in this way. And so how do we how do we combat that? Again, making sure that our forum is moderated, making sure that we have clear terms of service, making sure that there's an open dialogue between us, our users, when it comes to changes in our product. Like how do we actually establish two-way communication, that's always going to be a challenge because as you want to grow as a business, as you have priorities and a roadmap, you know, users might actually have different goals and objectives. And so just making sure that there's someone in place who can really be a proxy or an advocate for the user is is paramount. And again, like I said, Jen Schiffer, who works on the team, she's like sort of one of the OG glitchers. She's just a rock star when it comes to this stuff. So what you mentioned was about being inclusive and communicating with everybody, which obviously that's your role. And tech is going left. Everything's going left from customer support to testing to before that operations going back to dev. How is your role? Where are you in that product roadmap? Where are you in that messaging? How far, when are you brought into the product development roles and connecting with them? So it's, you know, this is a conversation that probably comes up, I'd say quarterly. I, I always joke around with marketing friends that go to market and product development are a full contact sport. You know, marketing always sort of owns that communication responsibility, but we can't really be brought in late because not at glitch necessarily, but like other times in my career you know, I've had teams tell me like, hey, we made the thing, go market it. <laughs> I'm asking myself, <laughs> why did you build this? Who is it for? And like, what are you expecting to, like, what needle are you trying to move? And so it's always unfortunate. Like I, I can actually laugh at those kinds of experiences now because I was so burned earlier in my career. Now, when I actually am on teams, I think it's a conversation that you have to set as a leader in the beginning, whether you're a new employee or you actually want to course correct, really just getting stakeholders in a room and say, look, there's no right or wrong, agile, waterfall, whatever. It's like, let's just level set and talk about what are our shared goals, role clarity, and who does what. And, you know, not to get super corporate, but like the the notion of having someone who is responsible and accountable and stakeholders who contribute and then need to be informed, there's a really big difference in who needs to do what. And I don't think that conversation happens enough. And even if it does happen, don't be surprised if you need to have it again, because 
organizations change, especially when you're scaling and people are unpredictable, you know? And I think especially in the year that we have had, everyone is in such a different place and you don't know what someone is dealing with and you don't know if, you know, work styles need to adjust or how you can support one another. So whether it's product development or just work in general, I'd say marketing is really powerful because we're kind of usually thought of as a tail end. Like we interface with the market, with the users externally. I I encourage every marketer to sort of drive those same internal conversations. They're they're often harder, but if you can actually push, it it makes the work product better. Yeah, I find clients don't love when I get on their Slack channels and that's great. They're fine with me being there. I vibe up the Slack channel and get it more engaged, especially in this year of everyone working remotely. But then I ask to be on the product channel and I ask questions like, who's this going for? Who's your target audience here? Who's your persona? (laughs) Which isn't the favorite question, but it's an important one. Totally. I worked with uh, Liza Sperling, who now runs product marketing for Upwork, Mm. you know, and she, when we were working together at Stack Overflow, we really had to change the culture and show how marketing could be a partner in product development. And what I loved about what she said when we started working together was she's like, let's just keep it simple. You know, let's just make sure that for every feature, we can go to the PM or whoever is on the team, and that everyone just has a really clear understanding of who is this for, what value are they going to get out of it, and when we ship, what is the business metric we're trying to move? And those three questions. And she said, if we can just get everyone to write it down, and we have that as an artifact, it's actually going to be the linchpin for all of the work moving forward. And I actually loved that. It was so simple but so effective. And that product roadmap shouldn't be just siloed to one department, even if it's not a tech company. Tech mm-hmm. swallowed the rest of the company anyway. That's mm-hmm. great. And I was going to say, like it, and when you think about how that plays out in practice, it, uh, it gives you license to push back on all of the stuff that can happen afterwards, meaning, hey, we have this feature, and now all of a sudden you're getting ready to ship. And some stakeholders might be like, are we going to be in TechCrunch? Are we going to like write the blog post? Are we doing the email blast to like everybody? And I'm like, no, because remember, this feature is for this audience segment. It's for this type of user, right? So it automatically eliminates having to throw things against the wall and do all the things. And then second, the business metrics piece, right? Just setting the expectations on what you think is supposed to happen. Again, nothing makes me sadder than when a product and engineering team is counting on me to sort of, I don't know, get something. They always have some expectation and then I miss the mark, right? Like you really have to have that conversation in the beginning where you can sort of tell the team, I know this was really technically hard. I know it's been months in the making, but like this isn't newsworthy. It's a good thing to ship. People are going to use it, but they're also not going to use it on day one. This is like what's going to happen day one. And here's what I'm going to do over the course of the next few weeks, months, and quarters to drive adoption of that feature. 
where do you think that attitude comes from, I guess? Because your expectation would be that there's already that kind of awareness and sensitivity to users. Do you think from a sort of product side, not to kind of attribute any sort of thoughts that maybe aren't there, but do you think sometimes they sort of get it wrong, I guess, in terms of sort of judging their users or the size of a group of users? Or where, where does that kind of mistake come in, I suppose? I mean, some of it is like a build, build it, they will come. Like there's, I think there's in general, it's all well-intentioned, which is just, you're working on something for so long. You finally get to push to production. The world gets to see the pixels on the screen change. And I think it comes from a place of enthusiasm, right? It's just, I think, reorienting a team to think about the launch is not, is day one, right? It's the start of, the adoption cycle, and that the code and the product is often not really what we're marketing. We're marketing an experience. Someone using a feature and maybe getting help in the forum is just as important to how the feature looks and how it was built on the back end. And so I think that's also critical, which is like when we talk about product, we talk about code how much of the user experience hinges on that literal thing versus what they experienced before, during, and, and after. So I kind of wanted to, so we kind of focused on sort of sort of challenges now, but I, I kind of wanted to get your sense of, because obviously, like, like you said earlier, you used to work at Stack Overflow, but I wanted to kind of get your sense of how sort of the challenges or kind of even like techniques and practices have changed sort of over the last few years or so in especially in kind of tech comms and tech marketing how have you seen things evolve and how are things different now that maybe they weren't even sort of five or six years ago you know one of the things that we're seeing is tremendous consolidation it's hard to dismiss big tech and the role that they play again we're we're building an in-browser editor and VS Code is beloved by developers. We host apps on our infrastructure and our platform, and there are increasingly a number of solutions that people are turning to. But you think about, you know, the big gorilla in the room, AWS, or you think about Azure, or you think about Google Cloud, you think about DigitalOcean, Netlify. It's like there's so much in terms of new, in terms of the market changing. And I think there's constantly this dynamic of like the big providers and market leaders, and then all of these new entrants, you know, and it's incredible to me. Like if you look at the Airtable story, I mean, did anyone really think that we needed another Excel or another Google Sheets? And yet here we are, people love Airtable. And so again, I think in terms of to your question about like, new techniques or whatever. It's not, everyone still needs to have a pulse on the market and everyone still needs to recognize that just because they're big market leaders, it doesn't mean that the little guys can't win or that developers are immediately going to be locked in and loyal to one or the other because often they're not mutually exclusive, right? And like I, for example, I know teams that use Trello and use Jira. And Asana. It's weird. You know, like they're like three different project management tools, but they're used for different things. I'd say what has just been harder, though, is when it comes to building organic communities, we we are no longer in that era of being able to like, go on Twitter, go on Facebook or Instagram and really grow an audience 
just by typing words into a box. I think paid spend is those platforms have made the game rigged in a way where if you're not spending money, it's going to be really hard to do audience development in a meaningful way. And unfortunately, like if you look at sort of big developer events, they're not cheap. And so constantly looking at your marketing mix and saying, all right, are we going to go do that one big tech event? Are we going to go to Mobile World Congress? Are we going to go to AWS? Are we going to go to Google I.O.? How much are you going to get out of that $20,000, $30,000 thing versus just sponsoring like a local Python meetup or like Black Girls Code or whatever? Like the playbooks haven't changed. It's just that like there's so much more money in the space. And so it's constantly just a struggle to figure out like what, where your marketing dollars are going to work best for you. But also I think the hardest challenge is like, how, how are you going to really do true product led growth and really make sure that those, those loops, those viral loops in your product, or how are you going to turn your customers into advocates that's actually coded into the product? I'd say someone had to choose, okay, do I advocate for $5 million in marketing spend or do I advocate for a seat at the product table? I will always say advocate for the seat at the product table. I mean, unless that money is going in your bank account, of course. For sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the big thing that's changed is there's just so many channels now. Marketing channels have blown up and Twitch is only like a year old, right? And that's a huge developer marketing space. There's so many different spots that are blowing up. And honestly, I've been to mobile world many times. I don't think there's mm-hmm. a developer in sight. So it's probably yeah. not your area. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of suits. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. So I mean, it's like, I, I would love to get to a place where bottoms up marketing programs, grassroots, community-oriented marketing was seen as just as valuable as direct response, PPC, retargeting, blah, blah, blah. Like, But I don't think we have that luxury. And so, you know, what we're going to probably see in the future is marketers, and I think this has been happening for a while, but a lot of marketers seeing themselves as community, community leaders, you know, like maybe we're not going to have CMOs in the future, maybe we're just going to have CCOs because marketing as a function is probably the most predisposed to caring about community. Again, advocating for the voice of the user and the customer and the external and internal communication, right? How do we actually communicate sort of the the values, the value, the hopes, fears, and dreams of our constituents? I can't think of a better function to lead that, but that's actually controversial. If you like are in community circles, some people think that community is actually a distinct function from marketing. Marketing right now, I think most like 30% of DevRel teams actually report into marketing. And so I, I get there's merit to both. I just think that like right now, marketing is usually the function that gives community air cover. But I would love to see a world where community is potentially even thought of as its, as its own leading function, almost like the judicial branch, right? Where it's like, hey, we need to make sure that the laws that govern our whole organization are upheld and that there's integrity behind our work. I was kind of interested in, so you, and also you touched earlier about Fog Creek and Anil Dash and um, uh, Joel Spolsky. Uh, I'm kind of interested in 
to what extent that kind of brand sort of the, the, the weight of the bra- of brands kind of helps you kind of build communities but also kind of puts pressure on you as well as a marketer and a communicator what what part does that play do you feel that pressure do you feel like you need to protect it or or does it kind of help you out I suppose it's certainly helpful. You know, I think because Joel had a blog readership on day one, when he launched Stack Overflow, there are already tens of thousands of users who flocked to it. So that helps when Anil Dash took over Fog Creek, he had an entire Twitter audience who was predisposed to trying a new product they had never heard of. And so that's always a win. And that's always helpful. I think what is challenging is as you scale and the composition of your community changes. When we say community, you know, Glitch has over a million users. I'm not going to pretend that a million people want the same thing, are, you know, want the same hair color, think that the sky is always blue. Like it's part of it is we celebrate the diversity, right? And so how do you evolve a culture from those early adopters into sort of something broader? bigger and more diverse, in which case having those early adopters actually then can become a challenge, not so much that they're they're bad. It's just, it's almost like the good old days. It's like when you have that favorite, like undiscovered garage band, and then next thing you know, they get signed to like a big record label and you're like, damn, like it's not going to be the same. Like it, that's kind of what it feels like when you're growing a community, which is like the people who are there at the beginning, you know, all of a sudden they're not getting like emails and DMs from the team because there are bajillion other people who are like interfacing with. And so it's helpful in the beginning. I think they're critical in the journey long-term. You just need to make sure that you have programs that make your early adopters feel seen, heard, and appreciated, but you really start to evolve and shape that relationship with the community overall. And these are good problems to have, let's be honest. We all want to be in in these problems at scale, but it's important to talk about because any app, especially in the open source or open source adjacent similar space like Glitch could scale to a million and you need to think you no longer have edge use cases, you no longer have niche users. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to be able to use you and be accessible to everyone. Speaking of accessibility, I, I was on a talk. I wish I remember where, where, who said it, but it's like, when you think about people who really care about designing for accessibility, this notion of solve for one, scale for many is so critical. And so I actually think that you can apply that principle in so many other ways right? Don't solve for the status quo, like keep your eye at the periphery or those edge cases. And to the extent that you bring, it's like a party. Like if you see a wallflower, you see that person in the corner who's not talking to anybody, make sure you always have space to keep your eye on them and then bring them in, right? Like that's how you're going to actually build a really robust, thriving community when you're not just solving for the thing that's going to, you know, move the KPI, you have to move the KPIs, but you also have to make sure that smaller segments of the people who you care about are incorporated into the plan. Which of course, Google prefers anyway, because Google prefers accessibility and we are still marketers. But on the other hand, it comes down to making sure your team has that type of diversity inclusion. Yep. 10,000%. 
Cool. And I guess you you kind of made me think of something that I hadn't really thought of before, but it's when you're sort of thinking about communities, I suppose, it's kind of getting that balance between engagement and sort of building loyalty between the people that are there and then also being open enough to kind of make it accessible and allow it to grow, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it, when I think about the importance of community, this is it, right? Because there's, there's no one pager, there's no plan that you can say, all right, we wrote it, now let's go do it. And it's so much like an evolving, living process. And so that's why companies might think of community as like soft, like the soft marketing thing. It's hard to measure the ROI. And it's like, yeah, it is hard. And that's why most people are underinvesting in it. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how we can codify community and what that function looks like and how it should get resourced. And it, it does pain me because when it comes to managing stakeholders and just business expectations, it often is the thing that gets scrutinized the most. I just feel lucky that in my career, I have worked for and I have worked with brands, organizational leaders who value it. But that said, we still, we're so nascent. There's, there's so much work that I think can be done in the community space. And I'm eager to see community leaders have like breakout moments from marketing because I, I do see them as distinct. So we're nearly at the uh, end of the hour. Um, I kind of don't want to take up loads more of your time, but maybe a good place to sort of wrap up is just just interested to hear kind of what you're like excited about, uh, what things you think people should be thinking about as well, if they're in tech marketing or tech comms, like what are you looking forward to, I guess, in 2021? I'm looking forward to, to like group hugs and dinner Travel. parties again. Restaurants. <laughs> getting, getting on a plane. But that said, I mean, I think... I I want to see people continue to create on the web and I want to continue to see people, you know, it's funny, everyone is like flocking to Substack, but what happened to blogs? So many of the Substacks I've seen are just probably great blog posts. But no, yeah, I think in general, like there's so much out there in terms of content that you can learn, you know, like the teachable community. There's so many like course creators now. There are so many just free places to absorb knowledge. In 2021, I would love to see people learn a new skill or like push people to like learn by doing and to make something and to like make something on the web. If you've never coded before, make something on Glitch or if even if you have been coding, but you want to like learn a new language or tinker with an API, just do it. Yeah, 2021, yeah. the year of the ox and the year of the makers, hopefully. And hopefully now we'll have employers actually stop filtering out those candidates that actually do instead of having a four-year degree. Yep. To make Build your portfolios. Money. Show what you can do. Make something. And HR professionals, look at those portfolios. Don't just tick a four-year computer science degree. I think that's a, a nice point to leave it. Have you got anything you want to promote? Where can people find you on Twitter? All of that sort of thing. So I am actually Alexa on Twitter. I have the Alexa Twitter nice. handle. I think Alexa. Have, have they offered you money? Have they offered you money? <laughs> 
Because I still I remember, like, 15 years ago, maybe more, like, when domain selling was a cool thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, 20 people made money. Someone owned JustinTimberlake.com, and she got a legal contract to free tickets to his concert <laughs> in his world for life. I would definitely ask for more than free tickets to a Justin Timberlake concert. Uh, <laughs> I mean, free, free shopping on Amazon for life. There you go. There's your equivalent. Wow. Wow. Well, set that standard that with, uh, with uh, Jassy, the new CEO. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's almost Yeah. I, I actually have been off Twitter for, I was off Twitter all of 2020 because I couldn't hack it anymore. Like there was not psychological safety on that platform for me. And so I actually took a huge Twitter timeout, but I'm back. I am back and easing into it. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Alexa. And I do have a website that I don't blog on, but I will because it's 2021 and it's a year of making and sharing things on the web. Yeah. I mean, for not having tweeted in the last year, you sure have a lot of followers there, Alexa. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're loyal. They're, it's my yeah, community. They are loyal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Thank no, you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for listening as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore talkabouttech. And you can also find all of our episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast. And if you head there, you'll be able to find us on all the major streaming platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts. As always, please like and subscribe. It really helps us. Um, we want to make sure this podcast gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Um, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.